Thank you, Steve and choir and orchestra. What a blessing for us. It's enough to go home, except I did a lot of prep work, so you're going to have to stick around a few more minutes. Uh, but I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that Dr. Estep would uh, invite me to preach this morning. This summer, we celebrated my son Andrew's fifth birthday. You, Andrew, you can wave if you'd like to, but then put your hands down and be quiet the rest of the sermon. But Andrew, we celebrated his fifth birthday in Hilton Head by boarding the Black Dagger that is a pirate ship docked at the uh, harbor town in Sea Pines. And so we got on the uh, boat that evening and all the kids and adults, the goal of the trip is to find the treasure that's somewhere lost out in the Calabogue Sound. So we went out to find it. We found the treasure, but we found out the key to the treasure had been stolen from Stinky Pete. And so then we had to locate Stinky Pete we finally found Stinky Pete out in the John boat and the sound, but he wouldn't give us the key. And so all the kids got to hose down Stinky Pete with the water cannons on the side of the Black Dagger until after several minutes he finally relented, threw us the key. We opened the treasure. The kids split the booty, which was gold coins, rings with fine gems, and little plastic sea creatures that I'm sure my boys loved more than anything. But man, they sure did love finding the treasure. They, everybody loves a good treasure hunt. And so don't lie about it. I know you do too. In fact, uh, several years ago, my parents were hosting um, uh, Easter afternoon at their house with my extended family. And so after we ate, then my dad said, we're going to have a grown-up Easter egg hunt. And so he took the eggs and filled them with some coins and went and hid them. And we were all going to go hunt. So my papaw, that's what we call my granddad, my papaw was there. So dad went up to papaw and he said, Dad, do you want to go out there and hunt some Easter eggs? And he said, no, I believe I'll let the youngins do that. I'm just going to sit right here. And um, that's how he said things. And so dad said, well, um, dad, there's money in the eggs. Well, I reckon I'll go hunt an egg or two. <laughs> and he fought with kids. And I'm sure my dad would uh, confirm that he walked away with more money that day than anybody else hunting eggs. So even grown-ups like a good treasure hunt. Um, and it's a fascinating thing for me. In fact, a show that I like to watch is really a treasure hunt show. Um, when I flip channels, um, this will really tell a little bit about me. But I love to stop on the show, The Antiques Road Show. Y'all ever seen that show before? Most of you feel like you flip right past it, but now I'm watching it. And um, a few, you know, it's where people find something in their attic or something heirloom from their grandparent or something they bought at a garage sale and say, this thing might have value, and they take it on Antiques Roadshow. I was watching a rerun the other uh, week of a lady who about 30, 40 years ago moved to a new town, and she needed the perfect card table, wooden card table, uh, for her house, and she saw one in a garage sale. She bought it for $25. I think she haggled down to $25. And so here, 30, 40 years later, she takes it on the Antique Roadshow, and uh, the, uh, the, the people that are you know, assessing what they've got there uh, the appraisers, they say, oh, that is an 18th century John Seymour and Sons original, which is a big deal on the Antiques Roadshow. And she put it up for auction, and her $25 card table sold for $541,500. So I went searching through the house. You know, surely, <laughs> surely we don't. So for me, treasure is more something that tastes sweet when it's going down. That's that time of year for me. Some of you know that. But uh, Jesus talks about treasure. He talks about it several times in the Gospels. Um, in fact, in one place, it's a verse that you're probably very familiar with where Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it. 
In another place, he talks about a good man who produces good from his good treasure and an evil man who produces evil from his evil treasure. He tells a parable about the treasure of truth. And then where we're going to be focusing today is in Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46, where Jesus tells the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the priceless pearl. So I'm going to read to you this morning from Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44 and ending with verse 46. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. In Matthew 13, it's an interesting chapter because we find that on this particular occasion, Jesus presents a sermon that is entirely comprised of parables. Now, when you read the text, the whole chapter, or when scholars study it, they recognize this is not just a bunch of parables that Matthew kind of pulled together and put in one place, but it appears that Jesus just preached this extended sermon and it was parable after parable. Um, And it was a favorite literary device Um, For Jesus, he loved to teach in parables or teaching device. Um, In fact, 35% of his recorded sayings are parables. So if you want to know what Jesus had to say, you've got to study the parables. The only problem is when we come to interpret the parables of Jesus, we're in contentious waters because people come down on different sides of how exactly to interpret it or how exactly to apply it. And I think a lot of times people get really obsessed with the parable being an allegory. And so they'll take every fine detail of the story and say, oh, that must stand for this, and this must signify that. And they just get really caught up in that. And so other experts kind of kick against that and say there's no allegory at all unless he explains it. You can't apply it that way. Some say whenever Jesus teaches a parable, if he talks about a field in one parable and a field in another parable, they mean the same thing. And so because of that, sometimes people come down on different sides in uh, the parable we're looking at this morning. But... Um, No matter what, I think we're going to be safe uh, with our application or our interpretation um, today. Because this parable, both of them, kind of fit into a a category of um, about six parables that are so brief and so to the point that there's only one takeaway from it. There's only one central truth. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I do want to break it down phrase by phrase so we kind of have the same background. But he says here in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Now, that'd get everybody's attention. It'd get the five-year-old's attention and the 95-year-old's attention because everybody likes treasure. So they all kind of perk up. So here's Jesus, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Now, Jesus has likened heaven to other things before, the kingdom of God. In verse 31 of this same chapter, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. A couple verses later, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Now, mustard seed, yeast, these are very small things, right? Very small, hard to see. They kind of get lost in the field. They get lost in the dough, whichever it is. And um, we could almost take Jesus' parables and think, well, he must mean that the kingdom of heaven is a small thing. But Matthew Henry says, in his commentary on this passage, he says, I don't think that's what he's saying. Lest we think that the kingdom of heaven is a small thing, Jesus trumps it by saying, no, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's a very valuable thing. It's a very weighty thing. 
on Thursday, um, Rachel called me uh, to see what I was doing, and um, she said, we just walked in the house, she and the kids, and um, sat down and heard upstairs a toilet flush, and nobody's supposed to be up there, and then I looked at the back door, and it's unlocked. She said, so we just left, and I said, okay, you'll probably be fine. She said, no, 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 no. You're supposed to say, oh, I'm your husband, and I'm the father of those kids. I'll come home and search the house for you. And so she reminds me of those things. I said, it's exactly what I was going to do. So uh, I headed home and um, went through the house, looked in every closet, under every bed, behind every shower curtain. Nobody there, just an overzealous toilet that liked to flush, you know. So we fixed that. Maybe. We'll see. Anyways, we looked at it. And uh, so Rachel told the kids, and Amelia said, oh, Daddy's our hero. And so I would do anything to hear that three-year-old girl, most precious girl in the world, say, Daddy's my hero. But then Evan spoke up and said, Mom. They might have been there and left. Did Dad check to make sure my piggy bank is still there? So (laughs) that's where he keeps his treasure. And so our treasure is very valuable. Sometimes it's valuable to us. Sometimes it's valuable to all. Um, Well, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's valuable to anybody who hits it, okay? This is not just valuable to the church people. This is valuable to everyone who would find it. And there's nothing greater than the kingdom of heaven. For one thing, it houses our great and glorious God. So that makes it valuable just that. Now, sometimes we will um, treat the kingdom of God as if it's a small thing. We wouldn't say that, but we treat it like that. You know, we live our life. Maybe we, you know, take a detour to church and maybe we read the Bible a little bit. But for the most part, um, we just kind of treat the kingdom of God as if it's a small thing. Uh, But it's not, and I don't know why we mistake and do that, but if we could really see God in his throne room in the kingdom of heaven, we would be overwhelmed. In fact, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw into the throne room, God on his throne, and um, he said it was high and lofty, and he said the train of his robe, or the hem of his robe, was so overwhelming that it filled the whole temple with glory. Just the hem of his robe. So if we could get a glimpse of that, if God were to rend the skies this morning and come down, we'd be overwhelmed. His throne would start to descend and they'd be so big that that the legs of the throne would overwhelm every skyscraper around us. You'd have one leg of the throne probably over in five points somewhere, one leg over here down by the river, one down at Bull Street and another at Elmwood just coming down and we would all stand in awe. And we would see these seraphim These majestic creatures with the wings over their face and wings over their feet. And if they stretched out their wings, they'd probably disappear in the sky. There's that magnificent. We know it because when they start shouting praises to God, it shakes the foundations. So when you say, oh no, I believe that the kingdom of God is a big thing. Do you really have a view of what the kingdom of God is really like? If we did, it would overwhelm everything, everything in our life would seem minuscule. The frustrations that you dealt with this morning, small in comparison to seeing God. The fears you have about tomorrow, dwarfed by the presence of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. So Jesus says it's buried in the field, somebody found it, and then he reburied it. It's just like the mustard seed. It's just like the, the yeast that's uh, kneaded into the 50 uh, pounds of flour. Um, it's buried. It's hidden from view. Um, I think there's an interesting point to take from this. It's not the central point. 
of this uh, parable by any means. But I think there are times that I wonder how people miss God. How people, how people can look at creation and miss that there is a great and glorious God over all of creation. That they can see the truths of the gospel but totally miss it, you know? I just don't understand that sometimes. But I think it's because it's hidden from view. Holman's commentary on this says that it's hidden from view because the kingdom of heaven is of the spiritual realm. It's not, you can't be seen with physical eyes. It's only seen with the eyes of the heart, the eyes by faith. Uh, well, folks, if we're not careful, though, even though we're believers and followers of Jesus, we also can get so focused on the physical world that we miss or start to doubt what's happening in the spiritual realm. All of a sudden, you get a diagnosis from a doctor, and you get overwhelmed by what they say, and you forget that there's a great and glorious God that you can go to that hears, that is concerned, who has authority over life, death, and everything in between. You get an unexpected bill, and you check your bank account, and of course, you find out you're in, your, in over your head, and you think, what in the world am I going to do? I, here I am trying to honor God with my life. Where is he? And you start to worry, and you start to, fret, start to fret because you forget, or you can't see that there's a great and glorious God who clothes the wildflowers that gives sustenance for the wild birds, and you know his eyes watching you. And he delights in you coming before him with your needs because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and can take care of it. We only see what's physical in front of us. Maybe you sit across from your spouse at the dinner table and you think, man, she's not who she was, or we've grown apart. And conventional wisdom says get out while you can because that's what you see with your own eyes, but you miss spiritually that God is looking over you with delight and desires to heal what's been broken, to put back together what's been pulled apart. Because we only see with our physical eyes, even though we say we're honoring him, we just can't quite see the spiritual because it's like a treasure that's buried. I believe that we get blinded to the spiritual world precisely because it's hidden from view and requires faith. It requires faith in order to comprehend it. You know, this world will try to convince you that um, this world will try to convince you that the only thing you can believe is what you can see with your eyes or what you can test with the scientific method. Well, I'm here to tell you, don't believe that for one minute, because I believe that it's more than scientific laws that keeps our world from spiraling out of orbit. As one poet said, I believe that there's more that rises in the morning than the sun. There's more that shines in the night than just the moon. There's a God who's over everything, including my life and the details that I'm facing. So the treasure's buried in a field. The man finds it, then he reburies it because he recognizes there's value here. There's value. And he's going to do something very drastic because of this treasure. In verse 45, we get the second parable where it says, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. I think there is a difference, or there is a difference. There is a difference between the merchant who's going through the pearls and says, okay, that's a good one, that's an okay one, you know, this is a C, this is a D, rates them all, until finally finds the one pearl that's priceless, that's greater than the rest of them, because he's been searching for that. There's a difference between that kind of search than the guy who goes out in the field and, you know, it's all this overgrowth and with no thought shovels down and somehow accidentally finds treasure. I think there's a difference in these two parables and that's kind of 
shows us there's a difference between searching for the fine pearl and an accidental discovery. One commentator, Ian Campbell, he writes, Jesus is reminding us that some people, and he says like Matthew, you remember Matthew was a tax collector, had no intention of meeting Jesus. Jesus comes by and says, come follow me, and Matthew gets up and follow him, follows him. Well, he says, Jesus is reminding us that some people find salvation in Jesus Christ when they are not looking for him. Others make the same discovery through their careful use of the means appointed for that purpose. See, I believe all of us are destined for collision with God and with the kingdom of God. Maybe it'll be when you search diligently and you try out everything to find fulfillment and purpose. And you say, well, this doesn't match up. This doesn't line up. But here I found Jesus. And he provides all I've ever needed. He provides the purpose and the fulfillment that we need. I don't know. Um, or it could be that you just suddenly get interrupted by God. I think most people need that sudden accidental interruption by God. And the reason is I think we're so self-absorbed that we're not seeking something greater than ourselves. We're so self-absorbed that we're looking for satisfaction and uh, meeting our desires through our own means. The prophet Isaiah said, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. That's all of it. We're just heading in our own direction, not aiming for God. We're following our own desires, not seeking God's kingdom. Now, sometimes we do this even when we're following Jesus. How about you? You know? In what ways are you seeking fulfillment for your life? In what ways are you finding purpose and meaning in your life? Maybe it's through wealth. Maybe you think, well, if I can just get a little bit more, that'll take care of everything. Maybe it's pleasure of some sort. Maybe it's uh, success. Maybe it's in some sort of relationship or in love. And that's where you're going to find fulfillment for your life. Let me tell you, those will meet a desire for a small minute, sometimes a little bit longer, but in the end it will fail unless you find your, your, your desires met in the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. We settle though, don't we? We settle for things that are much less. My uh, Grandmother, we called her Mamma. So we have Mamma and Papa. So Mamma uh, uh, at Thanksgiving would host the family for Thanksgiving. And y'all can probably guess my favorite dish at Thanksgiving was to show up and find the pumpkin pie. Okay, that was a lot of people's favorite. Not because she knew what it all went in it and how to bake it right, but it was the love she put into it. Right. So one year, uh, and I was in high school, I think, I went to Mamma's kitchen in Piney Flats, Tennessee, and I said, um, Mamma, I want you to teach me how to make your pumpkin pie. Now, that's a big chore because my grandmother raised 10 kids, so she didn't read a cookbook. You know, some of you don't do it either. She didn't measure things out. It just kind of felt right, looked right, tasted right, smelled right, you know, and so it turned out good. Well, I said, Mamma, but you've got to measure it, okay? I've got to be able to write it down. I'm not like you. And so we did, and I, that's, that's a treasure to me that I have that now. And so um, at Thanksgiving now, I'm responsible for making the pumpkin pies, okay? Now you think, wow, he's pretty awesome. I'm not. I'm not nearly as much as you think I am. One year, because I know how you think about me, one year I made the pumpkin pies, and uh, oh, man, they looked good. They smelt so good. Then you took one bite. It was missing sugar, okay? Now let me just go and tell you. If you're going to eat pumpkin pie without sugar, don't eat pumpkin pie, okay? And so uh, anyway, so we knew, well, whatever, next year we'll have pumpkin pies, you know. And, uh, but my Aunt Karen, who didn't always spend Thanksgiving with, at my memo, she was there that year. She had that pumpkin pie. And I'm telling you, she came downstairs to find me and she said, Wes, they told me you made the pumpkin pies. And I'm like, yeah. She said, that is the best pumpkin pie I've ever had. 
And I was like, either she is lying to me to make me feel good, <laughs> or she's never had pumpkin pie, you know? So she was, she was so genuine. She really meant it. You know, and I wanted to be like, whoa, your taste buds are way out of whack. You have settled for something far less than what the world has to offer. There is something so much better, real pumpkin pie, you know. I just wanted to preach at her. I didn't. I bit my tongue. But you know what? Isn't that just what we do? We settle for something that's so much less in life when all of a sudden you decide you're going to find your purpose or your, your fulfillment of desires through wealth or through pleasure, or through power, or fame, or in a relationship, through sex, through some sort of other substance, let me tell you, you are far too easily pleased. There is something so much better in life than that. You may not know that now, but let me tell you, there will be a point where it will be very clear that I have settled, I have been far too easily pleased here. What happens in Christianity is that sometimes it's presented as a tool for restraining desires. Well, y'all, it's not just about saying no to things. It's about saying yes to something that's so much better. Um, C.S. Lewis, who's one of the greatest Christian thinkers in the last century, and um, he preached a sermon. It's now entitled and published under the name The Weight of Glory. And I want to read this to you. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. C.S. Lewis writes, we are far too easily pleased. Y'all, I think there is so much truth there. I think for people who are not in a relationship with God, you are far too easily pleased by what this world offers you. You are far too easily pleased by things that will only delight momentarily. But you know what? We do the same thing. As a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes we are just far too easily pleased. We file in here for church attendance, sit in a pew, we hear a sermon, we think, wow, that was good. Or maybe not so good, whatever. You know, we sit and listen to the music and we say, wow, that was beautiful. And we think that's what it's all about. You know, we're far too easily pleased if we think that's what the Christian life is all about. What God offers is abundant life. When all of a sudden you engage with the truths of God's word and you live that life out, man, that's what's out there, okay? When rather than just singing the lyrics of the song, all of a sudden you get a full glimpse of who God is and it overwhelms you to the point of worship and you have a perfect perspective of who he is and who you are and how small everything else is. That's what God's offering. We're far too pleased if we just sit in here and say, well, that was good and move on. Wrap your mind around that one this morning. You know, it's like we've got the card table over here. We bought for $25. We've displayed the pictures on it, you know. And people are saying, throw that thing out. It's so old. And we're saying, no, it looks nice over there. And we think, well, maybe my desire for that is just a little too strong. No, it's too weak. Because that thing can provide so much more than what you're using it for right now. It's the same thing in our own lives. So let me ask you, what lesser things are you settling for in your life? 
Maybe it's as C.S. Lewis suggests. Maybe it's drink or sex or ambition that you've let come into your life and that's what you're obsessed about and you're focused on and you're driving forces towards. You think that's the best that this world has to offer. Let me tell you, just beneath the surface of the field of your life is a treasure. It's the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' story, the man found the buried treasure. He reburied it. Don't read into that. It's not like he's hiding the gospel. Just makes sense for the story. And then the verse says, verse, uh, second sentence there, then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. He goes, he sells, and he buys. What is the treasure of the kingdom worth? It's worth everything we have. You know what the central tenet of this parable is? The main thing that Jesus is trying to communicate it? I'll read to you. One commentator says, The kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing anything to gain it. You know, just a couple chapters later, Jesus, Matthew records Jesus' words where he says, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. That seems like a tall order. But when all of a sudden you realize what's offered, man, it's, it's not a tall order. It's so worth it. Sometimes God calls would-be disciples to literally sell everything. Maybe he didn't do that to you. But let me tell you one thing. If there is something becoming between you and wholehearted devotion to God, he wants you to abandon it today, to lay it down so you can wholeheartedly pursue after him, and it'll be worth it. Now, we probably shouldn't focus on four words in here too much, but I'm going to tell you it's what caught my attention. It's the reason I wanted to preach this. In that second sentence, it starts off four words. Then in his joy. In his joy, he goes and sells everything. How, how often do you just lead the Christian life like it's drudgery or duty? When you realize there's treasure there, it's out of joy. I'd get rid of everything for that. That's what it should be, in his joy. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the belief that the Christian life is all about duty-driven religion, but it is not. It's about not just restraining our desires, but refocusing and cranking them up because our desires are too weak. They should be stronger, but stronger for the right things. The things that will really provide fulfillment and pleasure and purpose and meaning. So if the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's hidden in a field, then let me go ahead and tell you, when you find it, go sell everything. Go get rid of everything that would hold you back and do it out of joy. Because let me tell you, it's going to bring the delight. Jesus says in his presence, or God says in his presence in the Psalms, there are pleasures in his presence. It's pleasure you can never find anywhere else. The Holman Commentary says about that second parable there, he says, the pearl merchant recognized instantly the value of the one pearl because he had measured the value of many lesser pearls throughout his life. I know that's the story of a lot of you. You've been measuring lesser pearls for a lot of your life. And let me tell you, there's a priceless, there's a priceless pearl and it's in the kingdom of heaven. Let me conclude for you. If I think there's an invitation today, okay? Now, we can misunderstand this parable, and we could think that, oh, it's about selling so I can buy. Let me tell you, you cannot buy salvation. If you think that your presence here is going to guarantee you a slot in heaven, you're wrong. If you think that your baptism kind of is the certificate you need to prove that you belong in the kingdom of heaven, you're wrong. Or if you believe your obedience, 
might purchase salvation for you, you're wrong. The gift offered to you today is free because it comes by grace. So here's the deal. Jesus is offering the gift, but you probably got lesser pearls in your hand you've just got to let go of in order to take the gift that's being offered to you. Would you do that this morning? Would you receive that treasure? Would you lay down the lesser things in order to find the greater thing? Our Father in God, we are so grateful that we get to gather for worship. We're so grateful we get to hear the truths of your word that it's preserved for us. And we're so thankful that there are tr there's truth here that if we harness it, will lead us to the abundant life. God, we thank you that it's a free gift from you. That only through you could we ever attain salvation. Could we ever be looked on by you with delight. Bless this time of invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the invitation is for everybody. Some of you need to respond publicly because you need to come join the fellowship of this church. Some of you need to recommit your life. Some of you need to follow in believer's baptism. There's going to be people down here to help you through that. But we all respond, even if we stay where we are. So let me invite you to stand as the choir sings. You respond. <laughs>